So I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I went to Elliott Elementary School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had our own song. E-L-I-O-T, Elliot. Everybody sing E-L-I-O-T. That's all I remember. Elliot Elementary School. I was in Mrs. Moon's second grade class, Olivia Moon, her second grade class. And during recess, we often played soccer. We divided into teams. And Cal, Cal Skinner, one of my classmates, he was almost always the captain of one of the teams. Cal, Cal was the man, Cal was a dude. Cal was athletic. Cal had biceps. <laughs> He's in second grade. What second grader has biceps? Cal had biceps. I always wanted to be on Cal's team. I didn't care if I even played on the field. I just wanted to be on his team because his team nearly always won because it was Cal's team. Cal's the dude. Cal had biceps. My, my year in second grade initiated me into the phenomenon which C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. Lewis gave a speech called the inner ring. It's about the natural longing to be accepted by the in group. The inner ring can include work, a community, a guild, a second grade recess soccer team, and yes, a church. Be inside that ring is heaven. Outside the ring, not so much. And so strong is the urge of the inner ring that people sometimes cross the line of their convictions to get inside. And it often starts small, but once you give in to that first compromise, you may give in elsewhere. Lewis wrote, and you'll be drawn in if you're drawn in, not by a desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment when the cup was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It would be so terrible, think Cal, it would be so terrible to see that other man's face, that genial, delightfully sophisticated face, turn suddenly cold and contemptuous. To know that you had been tried for the inner ring and rejected. And then Lewis wrote this. He said, as long as you're governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. Because you're trying to peel an onion. You know, once you get inside the inner ring, you find out that there's actually another inner ring. And then another and another. You're just trying to peel an onion. And if you succeed, there'll be nothing left. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider, you will remain. The quest of the inner ring will break your heart unless you break it. I read those wise words from C.S. Lewis. But then I thought, well, who has broken that 
inner ring. Who can break the impenetrable wall of the inner ring? Well, our Advent scriptures this morning declare that what is impossible for us to do is very possible for our God to do. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And when you meet me on page 857, you'll, you'll find verses 8 through 20 there in your church Bibles. The angel announced, I bring you good news of great joy. That is, I proclaim to you great gospel joy. And in our Advent reading, we learn that Christ's humble birth pulverizes the inner ring, the outer ring, and every other ring that separates us from God and one another. Our Advent scriptures teach us what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ, we are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the great family of God. Jesus, who alone is worthy of residence in the innermost ring, broke through that ring to reach us in the outermost regions. Yes, these verses teach us this big idea today. Christ reached out in love to be near his beloved. Now go see him. And when this news was shared in Luke's gospel, an army of angels exploded in song. It's a very simple song. There is glory in heaven, there is, glory, there is peace on earth. That's it. Glory in heaven, peace on earth. Glory, peace, heaven, earth. That's the angel song. And as we study these verses, I want us to consider, I want us to consider who first received these words, who first heard this song, the recipients of the song. Then I want us to examine the content, the actual message of the song itself, and then I want us to consider their response. The recipient, the message, and the response of the angel's song. Well, first, the recipients. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So clearly these shepherds were not inner ringers. <laughs> they were the proletariat. They were the working class. They were the field laborers. They even had their own culture, you know, because they were awake while the rest of the community slept. They were vigilant. They were dedicated. They guarded assets, uh, maybe some of their own assets as shepherds, but, but for others. <laughs> they guarded those assets from predators, thieves. They worked near Jerusalem, being near Bethlehem. So it's possible that these very flocks were used for sin offerings during the temple sacrifice. Ironically, though the sheep in these flocks would enter the temple, the shepherds could not because they were nearly all, always ceremonially unclean. Thus, they were an invisible 
overlooked class. Cal would never have had those shepherds on his soccer team because he wouldn't even know they're there. See, they were invisible, but not to God. Verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. That literally, they feared a great fear. And do you see the most repeated word in verses 9 through 12? Let me help. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What's the most repeated word? You. You. You, 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 you. To, to these humble shepherds, God cares. God wants to help in their dark cold, tiresome, invisible work, God comes near. Christmas concerns the God who loves his creation so much he desires to be near us. And why? Because that's what love does. That's why. Love desires closeness to the beloved. That's why so many will be in this space on Christmas Eve services at 4 o'clock and 5.30 We'll travel to be with family and friends because when you love someone, you, you, you want more than a phone call. You want to be with that person in the flesh. Church family, you, we are the beloved. God has come near. He appeared in a body. He desires to be with us. Francis Schaeffer was a brilliant thinker and author and a philosopher and he was once walking the streets of France with a group of friends, and they passed, uh, passed by a lady of the street there. And Schaefer stopped and asked, how much? His friends were horrified. But the woman gave him her price. He replied, no, how much? And she gave her price again. He said, I don't mean that. I mean, how much are you worth and she didn't know how to answer that question. And he then explained to her that she was made in the image of God and that Christ had died for sinners so that they would have fellowship with God. And in fact, she was worth far more than the price she had quoted. She was worth the very life of God's own son. And there she heard the gospel message. Now, was she looking for this message? Did she somehow deserve it because of something in herself? No, no more than you or me. Yet God found this woman, just as God found those shepherds, and just as God found you and me. You, you have come to a church of people who have been found. You could have been born in another part of the world. You could have died in your sleep last night. Those things could have happened, but they didn't happen. I'll tell you what happened. You came here today and you have met the God who takes nobodies and declares them somebodies. 
You know that? Can you feel that? Can you feel that truth penetrating your heart that God wants you? You say, but, but how is this possible? Oh, well, that takes us from the recipients of the song to the content or the message of the song itself. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. We typically think of those words as religious words, but actually, in the first century, they were highly political words. You see, at the time of Jesus' birth, Augustus Caesar had muscled his way through military conquest. He quelled the civil war. He secured peace throughout the empire. His name, Octavian, had been changed to the greatest of all Caesars, Augustus Caesar. At age 33, he had three titles conferred upon him, Savior, Lord, Prince of Peace. The Senate of Rome ordered the construction of an altar inscribed with the words Pax Augustus, the peace of Augustus. And in every major city throughout the empire, shrines were built in his honor with the banner, Savior of the whole world. His birthday became a world holiday. Do you know in western Turkey, archaeologists found what has been called the Prien inscription. It's dated to 9 B.C. It's about Augustus, and here's what it reads. The birthday of the God, that's what they called Augustus for his military conquests. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of tidings of joy. That's the word gospel. Tidings of joy which have been proclaimed for his sake. <laughs> Augustus brought peace on earth. But it was peace at the tip of a javelin held by a Roman soldier who belonged to the legions who mowed over every opposition. There was peace on earth, all right, but not in the heart. After Augustus died, there was a philosopher in Rome named Epictetus, and he wrote these words, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he cannot give peace from every passion, envy, and emptiness. While he may give an outward peace, he cannot give peace of heart for which humanity yearns more than anything else. Epictetus. He wasn't even a Christian. He was a Stoic philosopher. But he knew. He knew. And we know. We know something about what he said in our day, don't we? I'm thinking of a man named Tim McCarthy. Uh, Tim McCarthy's a businessman who sold his marketing company for $45 million. He gave $8 million to his key employees. 
He invited senior managers to spend time at his expense in New York City to celebrate. He rented a yacht so that they could enjoy the ocean. He treated them to Broadway plays. He sent them to Tiffany's. He said, I'll go buy something and put it on my tab. Tiffany's. But things went awry. He said, that's when they got cranky. He said, I was so disappointed. I told him, I'm taking you all on the trip of a lifetime, and you're fighting. What's that about? And the answer came in a book about all of that that he wrote and titled, here it is, Empty Abundance. Who can rescue us from that prison? Can your Savior rescue you from the prison of empty abundance? There's only one who can. There's only one. Verse 11, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So God's glory normally associated with, with the glittering golden urban Herod's temple now appears in the dusty rural village. At Christ's birth, God puts Israel on notice that the temple in Jerusalem, its days are numbered. There's a new sheriff in town. A new world is coming. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. The rightful Savior, Prince of Peace, and Almighty God will not be found in either Herod's temple or Rome's capital, rather Bethlehem. And his name is not Octavian. His name is Jesus. For the peace of Augustus was temporary. The peace of Christ is eternal. The peace of Augustus was about who's in charge out there. The peace of Christ is about who's in charge of my heart in here. The peace of Augustus was for the glory of Rome. The peace of Christ is for the glory of God the Father. The peace of Augustus was on display with banners and shrines and Senate resolutions. The peace of Christ was on display through a baby born to peasants. Think about it. The rightful Savior, the rightful Savior sign was not the glorious brilliance of the angelic army. Even the presence of the angelic army in Luke 2, that's not the sign of his presence. What's the sign? The sign is a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a feeding trough. And that's when the army appeared and proclaimed, there is peace and there is glory. Verses 13 and 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. So earthly armies come to make war. Heavenly armies appear to declare peace. And the angels proclaim that the peace of God comes solely through the Son of God. And is that not what the Apostle Paul echoes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that why Paul says in Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. 
peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God's non-negotiable offer of peace. Peace from faith in Christ. Peace not through diplomacy, but through the ignominious death of his son on the cross for our sins. And by his death, the cross of Christ obliterates the enemy. So Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is our king. And when Augustus Christos is the uncontested emperor of your life, you have peace with God. And when you honor Jesus as your emperor, he gives you his peace. And so the shepherds went into town and found the sign, the sign, a baby in a manger. That's the sign. My goodness, look at the sign here. That's the manger. This stone crib that was used as a feeding trough for animals held the precious body of the world's Savior. Verse 15 says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when I look at that image, when I read these verses, I think back to the entire sweep of salvation history in the Scriptures. I think to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Yet in coming to Jesus... These shepherds, the most humble in Israel, they do in fact know. And they show that they do in fact understand. So don't you see, more than just Jesus appearing charitably to these shepherds who are humble and represent the least of these, oh, it's more than that. It's more than that. These shepherds signify the arrival of the chief shepherd, the one who will at last do for Israel and the nations what all the other kings and rulers have been incapable of doing. Within these shepherds reside every failed ruler and king. They come to kneel before the rightful king. And is that not why the prophet Micah spoke in Micah 5? Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, 
and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group, God be praised. And he shall be their peace. Don't you see? Jesus himself will shepherd his people. He will fulfill Ezekiel's words in Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Anybody here feeling lost today? Anybody here strayed? Anybody here injured? Anybody weak? Christ has come for you. So from Isaiah to Ezekiel to Micah, the prophets testify the mystery of salvation. God appeared in a body, born in a room for animals. God has come near to help. And this is how God helps. He puts on human flesh. He enters our world from his. He who resided in the ultimate inner ring broke through that ring and broke down that ring and reached out to the farthest regions of the outer ring, he took hold of us with his nail-scarred, resurrected hands. And he's now breathed out his Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that he would never leave us. He's with us now, you know. He's in this room, in this place, here and now. You sense him? Christ is near. He's built this church. You. Not that. This. Where he will always be with us. And he gives us tangible physical gifts like, like baptism and communion, water, bread, the fruit of the vine as signs of his salvation. God be praised. How shall we respond to this? Well, look how they responded. The response to this song was that these shepherds were changed. Verse 20 says that the shepherds returned. Where did they return? They returned to their, they went back to work. They went back to their flocks, to their homes. They went back to their Monday morning vocation. But because they had seen Christ, the shepherds were transformed. And these shepherds became sharing shepherds. Verses 17 and 18 says, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Furthermore, these shepherds became worshiping shepherds. Verse 20 says that when they returned, they return home glorifying and praising God. Oh, and there's still more. Because they had met the infant king, they became affectionate shepherds 
For whose heart, how can your heart not be melted in the presence of holiness? These crusty shepherds became soft for God. Don't you see? The message of Christmas is that whatever is undesirable in your life, that can be changed. Change is possible. Change can happen through Christ. Whenever people say about their bad habits, well, that's just the way I am. You're just going to have to get used to it. That only means that the message of Christmas has been rejected. It's as though a triple A AAA truck pulls up to your dead car and says, you say, oh, it's no use. That's just the way the car is. And you don't even let the person hook up the cables. No, the message of Christmas is that the jumper cable between God and your life, that power flows is the power to change. And we know of that change, don't we? <laughs> Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done in and through our lives and because of what he's continuing to do in and through our lives. And through the eyes of faith, we see the Christ child. The Savior has come, and, and the D-Day victory over sin has been won. And by his life and work, Christ has crushed the snake and defeated death, and he's made atonement for sin. And now, fully confident of his life and his birth and his victory, we enter back into the rhythms of life. Now we act the miracle that has been brought upon our lives. And we can face old sins. And we do this because God arrived in a manger and reached out on a search and destroy mission to finish off the work of Satan. And so now, because of Jesus, we don't have to be on Cal's team anymore. Who's your Cal? You don't have to be on his team anymore because we belong to a deeper, more beautiful, more splendid, more lovely team, King Jesus. The king who reached out so that we could enter in. Now go to him. Amen.